Hi, and welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection of humans and technology. Uh, my name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan Weinshank. Hello. Hello. Hello there. And we also have a very special guest this week, Dr. Patricia Moore. Hello, Patricia. Hello, you too. And now Pat- Patricia is the president of Moore Design Associates. And uh, what exactly do you guys do over there? Well, it's more a question of, I think, Guthrie, what we don't do. Mm. Um, and I was contemplating that when I knew you'd probably ask me. Um, what we don't do is anything that I would categorize as harming people. And so the short answer would be that we have never worked within the realm of munitions. But the other side of that coin is that we do work with NATO and the wounded warriors globally in terms of helping people reclaim their lives when their bodies have been damaged uh, by the vulgarity of war and violence. And so I have to admit, though, I'm about ready, because I just spoke about this, and we can go back to it in a minute if you like, to uh, the User Experience Conference in Melbourne, Australia. I spoke to the subject of gun control from the perspective of redesign. And and that really intrigues me. Um, people have been talking a lot about smart weaponry that would know only a certain user should have the capacity of shooting a bullet that could end someone's life. Um, and now I'm, I'm really uh, aware that there might be a design answer in all of the, the tragedies of the massacres. And, um, and so I, I might have to pull back even from that response. So to repeat, what we do is we look at the design element in every aspect of our lives, our daily lives, how design as um, the global capital D uh, defines us as consumers and as individuals. So it's both um, the sociology of design and certainly the artifacts and, and uh, the presence of design in our lives. So... Uh... Patricia is famous, and we met her in Stockholm. Yes. That's that's just the background. And <laughs> I have no idea what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> um, I actually, I asked Susan as I And came, I wouldn't tell you. And you wouldn't tell me. So, Which, I love that. I love that a lot. I love surprises. Yeah, well, so you know, if I'm not asking great probing questions... <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I don't know. Where okay, this is you'll going. get to ask questions. Well, the reason I wouldn't tell you is because, you know, I don't know that I'm exactly sure. But I, I have some ideas of things that I want to talk about. Uh, it doesn't instill and confidence. I'm sure that will go off on tangents because we always do. Mm. And you're right. Um, uh, Pat, Patty, you are pretty famous. Do you, does that bother you when, when people say that or when they ask you, you know? Patty, tell us how famous you are, and tell us about your accolades. Uh, or, or, or do you or do you like roll your eyes? Are you rolling your eyes? No, I'm smiling because um, I think we should explain to people. I think we we share a capacity, Susan. We make up our minds pretty quickly about people, and and so I will warn the the youngsters. Um, first impressions are very important, and um, it's that old adage about you can't unring the bell um, and putting your best foot forward and all these things your grandmother told you and she was the smartest person in the room so make sure you you think back on that um, I I know you know that the whole question of fame is something that I find problematic in terms of what we have today with social media I will never understand why Kim Kardashian is famous and I also don't give a hoot. Um, but in terms of my fame, I've always recognized it as quite the, the blessing and the curse. The blessing is it opens doors. Um, I'm a friend of Oprah. That's, that really helps. Uh, because it allows people to maybe see you more quickly and hear you more thoroughly than they would if they thought of you as a total stranger. And that's the sadness, I think, of what we have with communication technology today, you know, beyond not getting handwritten notes and snail mail and getting people to phone you and have a chat and just a brief text. Um, those, those are some of the, the issues that I have from, for myself as, as a traditionalist, but 
because I'm also working in a world where we're trying to imagine what comes next and what the next great technology will be, I'm always looking at how does it impact quality of life. And so um, I find the fame um, helpful, but I also don't really build my self-concept around it. Um, I, I always hear a little voice in, in my head that says, yeah, but I'm just a kid from Buffalo, New York. And I find it really humorous that people want to ascribe a value to you that really I'm not sure makes any difference. Well, it, yeah, it is, it's interesting because, I mean, fame itself or, and being a celebrity and, and in general you know that that's a whole strange thing, right? Just right. you know, if, if you if you do know Oprah, right? Then that's like, like I don't know. There's this whole there's this whole like um, cascade of automatic reactions that I think a lot of us have to to someone who is famous or celebrity or knows a celebrity, right? Yeah. Um, by association, but Guthrie, I have a question for you about that, which is yes. you know, uh, and and then I I want to get back to the stuff Patty's done, but because you you've said to me in you know we've talked a lot about generational differences and and you know you give talks on generational differences, and you've commented to me about how millennials um, they. I mean, if one can stereotype an entire generation, which you probably can't, but in youth, I think you were implying that that people of your generation are less impressed by titles and accolades. Yeah, and I, I can tell this. I can tell the story. We were driving back from a workshop in Chicago, and I don't know if you remember exactly. And you had been worried that uh that that the because for for forever whenever you start your talk you ask what kind of raise your hand if you're in this generation or this generation just to get a feel of the room and you had noticed in the last couple of years a huge shift where basically the boomers were disappearing Retiring, yeah. and there were just tons and tons and tons of millennials yeah, it used to be I had a lot of boomers and a lot of Gen Xers and uh, only a little sprinkling. And then, uh, of course, time moved on, right? <laughs> and it changed. And now there was this huge group, you know, now I'm, I have some audiences where most of the people in the room are millennials, or at least half. And so, and you were worried that you would no longer be able to get the recognition or the kind of kind of respect from the younger group. Yeah, that I would be seen as being, you know, too old to be of right. relevance right. to them and keep and telling the story. Yeah, and so what's kind of actually happening is that it turns out millennials actually seem to like you even more than the Gen Xers. Yeah. And so my theory is that um, millennials care a lot less about traditional uh, uh, title and hierarchy structures. So... Um, you know, like like I said, age, experience. Um, do you, but do you, what do you, what about the idea of fame and celebrity? Do you think they're 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 as affected by that as as other people are? Yes. Yeah. I yeah, think so. I I think they are. I think I think though um, there are. I think there's different. Certainly a subset. I think millennials kind of split in half, and there's and there's definitely a subset of millennials who are very 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 into fame and celebrity. Um, okay, and then there's others that are like, eh. But, but again, uh, just just to finalize, I, I actually thought that millennials would like you more because um, after years of being on the internet, the only thing we really trust is people who actually like give facts. Because we, because you know, our lives, whether it's, or just kind of are in constant punditry, even if it's not about politics, like everyone is basically kind of just giving their opinion online all the time about everything like movies and so so um we seem to, we we as in millennials seem to respect um uh just kind of data data facts figures back it up just and then opinion yeah and it, and then if you if it seems you know what you're talking about that's how you gain respect so that's that was my theory about um, why you were okay. actually quite popular but not, but not necessarily any difference on celebrity. All right. Well, let, we, I think, we're excluding I think, Patty here. I think 
millennials generally. I don't know. It's hard to tell because I don't know. I, I, I think, I think the bigger question is who they find as celebrity, who they like see, who who they'd be in awe of. Who they might be in awe of someone who's different. So like Gen Xers, yeah. right? Like yeah. Like I, I I would imagine Gen Xers would be exactly as smitten by celebrities as millennials as would boomers but it just depends who like the who the celebrity is changes right um so maybe and and i i just don't know what who would be who would really have that level of celebrity um in older generations so i think back in the day maybe political figures um or spiritual leaders or intellectuals. All right, so Patty, had what's, that kind what, of respect. what's the downside of celebrity? Patty? I don't know. I'm just a skewer. Um, well, it's the corny stuff you hear someone talking about with Jimmy Fallon. You know, you're having your dinner and someone comes up to the table. But but the the nice thing for me, because I'm not that kind of famous, is yeah. people are very respectful and kind, and I'm very flattered by the recognition. Therefore, so you know, especially when I'm in New York City. Um, you'll spot that a table has recognized you. You know, you've just come off doing the Today Show and you're meeting your girlies and having some brunch. And and so you're wearing the same dress you were just wearing. And so people spot you. And otherwise, I'm not recognizable. People don't really see me as the person they just saw on TV or on stage. And um, and so they, they wait till you finish your, you know, your tuna fish sandwich, and then they come over and, and chat. Ah, so they're not running over screaming and then pulling yeah, out the yeah. cell phones and interrupting yeah. your dinner. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not Johnny Depp or Meryl Streep. So, so you have a, you have like a, a, a kind of a better level of celebrity. I do. I, I have a, I have a very well, you know, and I think it goes to the issue of merit, and I think millennials really embrace merit, and that's why I do have great faith in what they're going to achieve. And I'm very flattered that they invite us to conferences because, you know, I'm, I'm 65 next year. And if anything, I'm, I'm being treated with such um, lovely respect and consideration for what I know and the fact that I love sharing it because I want the, this very powerful generation of millennials to make it their own and make it better. And that's what we do generation after generation. With each new tool that we add to our, our box, we're getting better, or we should be. And it's only when we falter and step to the side, as we're seeing in some of the lunacy of the politics right now, that I think people of all ages take pause and say, wait a minute, is this really the path we want to take? Now, now you, many years ago, well, you've been interested in... in aging issues, lifespan issues for, you know, pretty much your whole working career, right? Well, my mother and father each have a a favorite story that actually puts my recognition of the distinctions of age and ability to me being uh, about two and three. And so somehow I got that gene. And I think in great part it was because we lived with our grandparents and, and so I saw how the distinctions of capacity define us by design. It's not that people are broken. It's the interfaces they have with the stuff that we put into the consumer realm that makes us able or unable. And so that's why I bristle about people defining um, all older people as, you know, gimps and geezers and handicapped and disabled. That just sends me off on an Irish tyrant. So I tirade rather. So I, I get really upset by that. All right. Well, give an example of what you mean by the fact that that okay, it's not the people; it's the design. Well, I re- I remember um, a very painful um, episode from my my girlhood where. Our, our grandmother was so sweet, she would never, of course, shoo us out of the kitchen, but I know we were driving her crazy half the time. And so she'd give you just a, you know, a silly little task that would keep you busy as you chattered away, and she was trying to get dinner on the table because that was her great joy. Um, and I was you know, putting green beans in piles of 10 or whatever she gave me to do. 
and very happily counting and talking to her about everything and anything. And I looked up when I heard the strange sound of a, uh, an animal, really, something painful. And I saw my grandmother pulling away from the refrigerator door and taking her hand and placing it under her opposite arm and then slowly walking out of the kitchen as if dazed. And I realized in the silence of that pain that something terrible had happened. And I ran and got my mother. My mother went into her room and spoke to her and then came out and put the apron on and, and completed the dinner. What I had heard when my mother was in my grandmother's room was the soft crying of my grandmother. And it wasn't until I was actually uh, in high school that we even talked about this episode, my mother and I. And it was that day that I realized my grandmother's life was beginning to change. Her arthritis had come to a point where just the simple task of bending her fingers around that handle on the door of the refrigerator and giving it a pull to open it became too painful and therefore impossible. And I grew up in the world of industrial design, product development and design, where the other people in the room would say, oh, well, she's just too old. And I would find that dismissive attitude, which was prevalent when I began my career in the 70s, as being absolutely appalling, if not criminal. And that, that's what defined my whole career by design, was recognizing what we can't do defines our capacity for autonomy and independence. And that's why it's so important. So now that you're, I mean, you're not... I, I don't want to call you old. Uh, you gave us well, your I, age. No, no, but that's that's fun, Susan, isn't it? The only way we can use the terms young and old is if we use the median age. And the median age in the United States right now is roughly 38. So if you're older than 38, you're then old. You're old. And right. if you're younger, you're young. All right. So you know, you've, you've heard me on stage. I play with that kind of language. Yeah. Great deliberateness because what I'm trying to point out, especially to the millennials, is it's a stupid waste of time and effort. So let's get rid of all these disparaging terms and these titles because they don't serve anyone well. So, all right, all right, fair enough. So I'll say now that you're old, at because you've been thinking about this for a long time, okay? But thinking about it when you're 25 or 30 or 35, is that different than thinking about it when you're 65? Like, how has that, has any of your thinking about this changed now that you are older than you were when you first started? Well, I, I do think we see behavior patterns according to to age that are relevant. And so, you know, when we're in our 20s and 30s and we're binge drinking or doing risky behaviors, we we're saying to ourselves, "Well, I know, I I really, you know, I could be doing better." And then you get to your 40s and 50s and you start thinking, well, I really should be working out or eating better. And then by the time you're at your 60s and 70s, you realize, you know, there's no more time to waste and you must do things. So you go from could do, should do to must do. If, in fact, you want to take charge and control over the quality of your life, and, and that, too, is a choice. So we have all the issues of um, people determining the quality of their life by choice. But the control comes from the things we can change and the things that we can alter. And, and that, I would say, is the global issue of design with a capital D. So do you think that, that do you think people are more open or less open to these questions and design discussions now than they were before? I mean, I, I think on the one, on the one hand, it seems like People are becoming more aware. Uh, people are living longer, right? So, so and and uh, and I think just this the whole. If you look at you know quote old people, there's such a huge range now of age, ability, uh, disability, um, because people are you know we're not just talking about people in their 60s or people in their 70s. We're talking about you know anywhere from you know, 55 up to 100. So there's just more of it. So in some ways, there's more awareness of uh, specifically um, 
design issues for older people. But do you think in that way, then we also just get complacent and assume that somebody's taking care of that design and so we don't have to? Because, yeah, everybody knows about that, so it's being handled. I, mean, I, don't, think- think it's, I don't think it's complacent, complacency. I think it's awareness. The issue has always been awareness. I think that we have seen um, a shift, and it's a very important tipping, because we're going from – uh, this attitude of aging is a medical concern to recognizing aging is a consumer concern. And I've been a big piece of that philosophical change, I think, and I, and I hope, because it is most important to getting corporations and govern, governments to understand their role in provision. But I think what's happened thanks to media is we've gone from the very disparaging view of, of being an elder, you know, to I've fallen and I can't get up and comedians standing there and laughing about it, um, making jokes about incontinence, um, you know, having the character actress saying, where's the beef? And that being coming, becoming uh, part of a political campaign. You know, the nonsense of our recent past to now the relevance of when I see a commercial of a small child listening to his parents and their great concern about what are we going to do about mom? You know, she's got to move in here, but we don't have room. And finally, the little boy breaks into this adult conversation and says, well, grandma can have my room. That's why I keep saying that I trust the millennial to get this right. I see that the generational shift in attitude about aging is getting healthier, and it's all because of awareness. And now the missing piece is this choice and control, and that's the coin of commerce. So everything we're doing to alter behavior and potential is coming from the provision of ability. We're not looking at someone who loses a limb now as having their life be over. And that's a very recent traditional attitude that has been tipped on its head because now we have all sorts of compensatory technologies that are making a huge difference in terms of what people can do and what they want to do coming together. Hmm. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, Patty, what is your thought on then um, in regards to this it, it, uh, retirement once you get to a certain age because um, because recently especially in the great recession that we just had um, obviously there, there's an expectation and I think it's more historical than anything that again I think it's rooted in right once you get a certain become a certain age well then you're feeble and you can't work and over time, that's also kind of traditioned into, well, um, you've you've worked for a lot of years. It's time to, uh, you, like, you know, um, enjoy, uh, you, you, you know, the after the retirement part of your life with dignity and being able to have money and fun and uh, uh, that kind of stuff. So do, do you have any do you have any thoughts about the state of retirement? Because, I mean, traditionally, right, 60 and you retire, but we're seeing way more uh, people you know, keep working way past past that. Well, you've just brought up a lot of really, you know, interesting pieces we can talk about. Let, let me start with the fact that in 1900 in the West, in the U.S. and Canada, life expectancy was 40 years. Hmm. And that's how remarkable our health and wellness factor is in terms of adding um, sanitation and sewage and improved food sourcing. Thank you, penicillin. Yeah, I mean, these are the things that almost overnight changed us from having essentially the same lifespan that we had in ancient Rome and Greece um, to now actually planning our 100th birthday with a sense of reality that we're not just dreaming. Uh, my mommy's 89 in December. We're, we're already starting to talk about her big party. And we do so with the hope that she will be well enough and with us at that point. And also the recognition that if she's not, isn't it remarkable that she's had this, this great life? Daddy didn't make it so far. He got to 85, but also a great life in consideration of the rigors that his father and his grandfather had and the fact that working in the steel mills killed them. 
um, and probably killed my dad too because he did have asbestosis uh, from exposure. But the fact remains now with media helping with good, solid, and truthful depictions of older people, what, what um, you know, we see is I call the Betty White factor. You know, that one person, that <laughs> beautiful person, took the millennials by the hand and heart. And I really think she's your poster child of somebody that, you know, that's who you want. You know, it's the whole booby thing and the, you know, the Grammy and the, and the Nana. You just, you want that woman to be your grandmother. And you want her to be your grandmother because she's fun and she's feisty and she's got all this great experience and, you know, you could listen to her stories all night long. So we've had, we've had a tilt in and a shift in our attitude, not just about aging, but in terms of who our poster children are. And we love our, the presence of our elders in our lives. And we appreciably, in, the, in our heart of hearts, hope that we'll get there too. Because now we have the promise that we're going to be well and we're not going to be sick. So retirement is going away, I think, for that emotional, psychological, sociological, cultural reason. But it's also going away because we can't afford to stop working at 65. Yeah. And this, yeah. is, this is why in the industrialized world, we're seeing 72 just around the corner in the EU and certainly here in the States as the retirement age for pensioning. But even past that, people want to work because they enjoy it. They love it. It gives you purpose. And let's face it, a life without purpose is a very lonely and can become an angry life. And I think that is where we look around the globe at the hot spots, the trouble spots. It's because we have peoples who have lost purpose. And without purpose, there's, there's just no point. I was, I was just recently um, listening to... Uh, I don't not sure if it was a podcast or a radio program where they were talking about in Japan um, until very recently, like the last year, uh, it was required that you retire uh, at 62. I mean, you had to. You could not be employed after 62. And in very rare instances where for some reason you were needed to continue, your wages would be like a third of what they had been. And so this meant that, you know, everyone stopped working at 62. And that has created its own series of problems. And they have, um, in Japan, they actually have a problem with not enough young people. Um, so they were going to the point where there weren't there aren't enough people to to do the work that needs to be done. So they've recently changed this, and they'll let you keep going uh, after sixty two, and that's like a you know a big deal. And it, it's so interesting because yeah, over here, right? Uh, I mean, people definitely keep going past sixty two, and I agree with you, Patty. A lot of it is um, because you know the the. Uh, especially with the the recession hitting and all kinds of other changes that occurred over the last ten years in in the U.S., um, there's a lot of people that just don't have any safety net, and uh, or not or they feel not enough safety net, and they keep going. But I do think that we you know we have a lot of social relationships through work. Um, we have a lot of structure. Uh, and that for a lot of people in the past who, you know, who were encouraged to retire at 55 even, right? That was a common age for retirement. You know, they did so because they felt like they had to, but uh, they didn't really want to or even if they wouldn't admit it. And you also would see their health go decline really quickly, Oh, it's it's after retirement. Yeah, the correlation in the studies there, of course, literature is is immense. Um, it really is quite true. You hear these horror stories about poor Ralph. You know, he just retired last Friday, and they were going to go around the world, and then he walked outside and had a massive heart attack and died. Um, there, there seems to be a switch within us. I don't know that they found it yet in the brain, but there is a real danger to saying I'm done at any point in our lives. You know, it, saying I'm done signals something very dramatic. And I think it does have an impact on our physiology. 
All right. So we were talking about design stuff before. Um, I, I have a question for you about design. So sure. you mentioned, for instance, uh, you know, weapons and, and perhaps the idea that we might have um, be able to do some innovative stuff uh, in terms of weapons that would actually um, protect us from from the violence of weapons, of some weapons. But what other, um, I mean, you could talk about that more if you like, but I also, uh, I'm interested in what areas of design, are there parts of design, are there different products that you feel, um, you know, we've not made enough progress on, you know, why, why the heck can't we, you know, someone please uh, uh, fix this or put some funding behind, you know, this because we're not, we're not gaining ground. Well, um, I was struggling with two as you were speaking, Susan, but let me grab the one that came up second and that's transit, personal transit, mass transit. Um, we're seeing autonomous vehicles being pushed all over the realm now. The industry is embracing that we will, in fact, have this George Jetson world where we, we all are driving around in, in a vehicle that is technically robotically controlled. And I'm a big fan of that piece of technology, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to how it's going to impact my future life. Um, but I'm also asking those broader issues about infrastructure and community and what by design can we put into play today. And so sadly in the States, we made a, a dramatic decision to go for four wheels, one person. And that took up a lot of our resources and we're still struggling with the aftermath of that. Here in Arizona, uh, we had federal funds available to us for a rapid rail between Phoenix and Tucson. I ask any person on the street what they think about that today, and they all look so longingly, oh, wouldn't that have been great? Because the drive between Phoenix and Tucson is so painful. And if we have a dust storm, it shuts that one highway down. We have one lousy link between two great cities, and the whole country shuts down because of these dust storms. You know, um, it's, it's just amazing to me that we've dug this hole for ourselves. So as we look at what should transit be, I'm also defining it within the realm of our nest. So just remembering my dad struggling to get out of his lounger in the den just to make it to the toilet in time. He no longer had that capacity for personal mobility. And is it a Segway-esque kind of toy and tool that we should be building for ourselves? Should we have some kind of magic slippers that glide us along the floor, whether our issue is bariatrics or paralysis? I don't know what the answers are, but I do know what the needs are. And so I'm looking at transit as being a, just a wide open field, um, you know, well beyond bullet trains and, you know, Google cars. And I, I'm also looking at every aspect of being a, a consumer with that autonomy and independence we talked about. Um, yesterday or the day before, there was a very snarky article posted by a British writer. And he was speaking against Amazon developing the tools by which within our home, whether it's a matter of creature comfort or basic necessity, you can have the stuff of everyday living delivered to your home. And he found this a very lazy offering and he was really, um, I think, demoting um, Amazon's creativity and innovation in a manner that he simply missed the big picture. And for me, the big picture was, if my mother needs toilet tissue, I love the fact that she'll be able to tell the empty toilet paper roll, oh, please deliver some new paper for me, and that the doorbell will ring the next day and she will have her toilet tissue. Um, that's what the companies like Amazon are looking at. What will keep us fiercely independent and capable within the nest that we choose as our home? And those are the two major areas, I think, that um, I'm looking to in terms of you know what we do today and what we can do in the future by design. And I find it a very thrilling time. I also realized my dream of, of stopping all this and going back to my roots of wanting to be a painter. Probably it's not going to happen anytime soon. Now, you don't mean house painter, do you? No, I, I was a fine artist. <laughs> I went, you know, 
I went off to college at 17 and I really thought I was going to be Picasso. And um, I had a single professor had been watching me and uh, he put a, a stack of journals for the Industrial Designer Society in front of me and said, do you know what industrial design is? And I said, no, because nobody knows. That's why we call it product design now. Um, and I took a look and as he had suggested, if I was intrigued to come see him and I was camped out at his office door Monday morning and changed my major. Hmm. And we lost the next Picasso. I know. But look what we gained. (laughs) Oh, you two just like me too much. (laughs) Oh, you, but now you can retire. Well, you know, I want to go back to that because I do look at this. I I had, um, right around the time we met, I had um, just had my annual eye appointment. And my eye doctor is one of my dear friends. And I saw this change on her face when she pulled her chair away from the stool where I was surrounded by all those gadgets, you know, when they check you out. And I thought, oh, my gosh, Anne has to tell me some bad news. And we don't have the greatest um, vision in my family. There's there's macular degeneration and there's, you know, cataracts and things like that. Mom can only see out of one eye. That was a birth anomaly. And so I realized here it comes. And sure enough, she said, well, you have drusen. And I, um, I was like, okay, drusen, you know, sounded like a Dutch chocolate to me or something, but it wasn't. So it's these nasty little particles that, you know, congregate in our our eye orbit and uh, they cause, they think, macular degeneration. So that was heartbreaking for me because I thought, oh, damn, I'm never going to be Picasso too. Um, but, you know, there are things I'm already doing. There's supplements I can take. I eat carefully. And then we have to wait for the roll of the dice that said, it made me do yet again, and I do this pretty frequently. I'm always asking, what if? Um, that's, that's really how I think my creativity works. I'm always pushing clients past what they say the brief is for what they want to. Well, what if we tried this too? And so I, I always ask myself, what if I go blind? What if I lose hearing? What if I get arthritis and can't hold a paintbrush? What if I can't walk to get to an airport and get on a plane and end up on a stage with ease. And I'm, I'm always, you know, contemplating that question, not out of any morbidity, but rather, rather out of planning. You know, what, what will I do to supplement, to change, to alter my way of life so that I can continue to have a way of life that I find appealing? And it always brings me back to my darling friend, Julia Child, who surprised not just me, but everybody, I think, when she announced one day she was going to leave Cambridge and go into assisted living. You could have knocked me over with that proverbial feather. I never thought I would hear that. But when you spoke to her about it, what she said was, when I came to a point where I could no longer lift my arm above shoulder height or bend down below knee height, I knew I couldn't cook because I couldn't reach my tools and my time had come. And she literally and figuratively hung up her apron and decided she was going to have her final days in sort of a hotel existence. And I had to ask myself that question, would I ever be comfortable accepting that? And it gets back to something I think you said earlier, Guthrie, Asked me that question 10 years ago, 20 years ago, definitely. I would have really been ferocious about saying, no, 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 it's never going to happen. Today, as I near 65, I'm realizing I'll be okay with that. But what I'm hearing myself say, if I can paint. <laughs> you know, so so um, the thing that does frighten me the most would be losing my vision. Um, because then, of course, painting would take on a whole new meaning but that said, I have a friend who is um, near black blind, and he's a fabulous photographer. So you never say never. And, and well, okay, so this brings up all kinds of interesting things. Well, first of all, you know, there's the technology like the, the, the brain port and the new technology in which um, it's – the brain port is where you put the device on your tongue and then you're wearing uh, the glasses with the camera and it transmits the 
um, signal, the, a video signal from a camera into your tongue, and then a different part of your brain, uh, quote, sees rather than uh, uh, your, your uh, vision. Exactly. Um, yeah, you're, we're seeing differently. And that's, that's what's so important is to focus on compensatory and supportive yeah, and that allow us to do now things. Now, I don't know if you could see enough to paint, but I, I, also the technology is really early. So maybe, you know, in a little while it'll get better. But I think there's also this interesting thing as you were talking, I was thinking about it's really hard sometimes to know when do you, and this is true for younger people as well, it's not just old older people, when do you say, you know, I'm going to accept that this is happening and and admit that this is happening and then take action so that I can, you know, live the way I want to as best I can instead of denying it. Right. Instead of pretending that, uh, oh, no, it's just fine. You know, my arm doesn't hurt. My shoulder doesn't hurt. Um, but on the other side of that, I think it's hard to know sometimes, wait a minute, what is this happening because it truly is a limitation I have? Or, uh, you know, am I am I not working hard enough to find us? a solution or a cure or a fix, you know, should I just accept that? Yeah, that, you know, my shoulder is, doesn't work anymore. Or is there something I could do about it? And, and I haven't done it yet. And I think as, as one gets older, it's hard to know when you are being, you know, practical and positive and, you know, living, uh, making adjustments in your living or whether you are, uh, uh, you know, giving in to uh, aging in a way that you shouldn't. Well, you're, you've just brought up one of my favorite subjects, especially with um, students of design and certainly with clients that are all looking to be the next Apple. Um, I, I always talk about M&Ms and not just the candy, although I do love the plain. Um, and the M&Ms I'm talking about would be the magic and the miracles. And the magic and the miracles I don't think we ever want to give up on. You know, it's sad enough when, when you have to face the fact that there's no Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. But that said, you still want an Easter basket full of chocolate. And and I, I have so many of my Jewish girlfriends who get really upset when I forget to give them an Easter basket. It's like, excuse me, wait a minute. That's a different playbook. But, they, they you know, they're insistent on the tradition now. And that makes it fun for all of us. And so I think that's the giddiness and the fun and the silliness and the playfulness of, of an entire life. And I see it every time I go into a skilled care setting. The elders who are teasing you and playful and having fun are the ones who are in much better shape, even if physiologically their bodies have just quit a long time ago. Their, their capacity in terms of personality and spirit, um, they're the ones who want to wake up every morning. And then you'll meet people with very little to complain about, but they are just the grumpy gusses who make, make you want to leave the room and go find somebody else to talk with because they, they just have lost faith in M&Ms. And, and when we don't expect as consumers that somebody's going to get this issue I have today figured out tomorrow, then I think we should be giving up. But that's, that's why I know we can't because we do have M&Ms. Every day, some, some other promise comes to the forefront, whatever arena you're working in, like just recently having a medication that's, that is dissolving plaque in the brain, big advance potentially for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, that was huge. And, you know, one of the, Guthrie, the, the thing that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting um, chills here, you know, about this, the excitement of this is um, the stat we work with is one in two people will have intimate relationship with the disease of Alzheimer's by 2050. And that refers to the fact that everybody's going to have somebody in their close personal sphere that's dealing with it. So you might cover for a buddy at work who needs to take his grandmother to a physician or needs to go visit mom uh, and they're suffering uh, with Alzheimer's and your, you know, your friend is a good son or grandson and, and, um, Lovingly, you also are trying to help in his situation, or it might be 
um, that, you know, my sister develops the disease and I can't go running around the world anymore because I choose to be with her and tending to her. Um, and so we're going to have this tremendous shift in how the population deals with one physical aspect of late life. And so any, any tools that we can put into play, the M&Ms, really will make a difference for the very near future. Yeah, that, um, that Alzheimer's research is really, really interesting. Because it's, it's the most expensive single disease in the United States. Well, it is, it's already crippling so many families around the world, and it's only going to get worse if we don't get some answers. All right, I have a question for you now. I want your tips and techniques. <laughs> for you, you are a world traveler. Yes. And that's not uh, uh, just a metaphor. <laughs> no, my, my, my uh, commute, you know, when someone comes to the meeting table groaning and moaning that it took them an hour to drive in this morning, I have to give them a hairy eyeball that says, yeah, well, I flew 19 hours, so shut up. So, I mean, you, you really fly. I mean, when we met you in Stockholm, you were, had just come from London. Uh, you live in, in Arizona and New York, right? Uh-huh. You have a home in Arizona, a home in New York. And uh, you, w we met you in Stockholm. You had just come from London. And then after Stockholm, you were going back to London. I know that uh, just a few days ago, you just got back from Australia and New Zealand. And you told us some crazy story about like how many days in the past year you'd actually been home or... Oh, my deranged assistant, who I adore, but... She she loves numbers, Guthrie. You'd get on well with her. Um, she she created an Excel chart, this tremendous Excel chart that uh, goes back to 1982, and we found that on average, I'm out of the office 242 days each year. Just, wow! Like I mean, because because I can, you know, how many millions of miles have you flown? All told, have 12 you? Million. Now, okay, what, how many? 12 million. 12 million. 12 million. Okay, hold on. I got to you got to do some Yeah, yeah, he's doing I got to I got to crunch some numbers. I'll be right well, back. Well, so so my question for you, I mean, I, I I don't I don't think I could do it. And uh And I don't think you should do it. I'm not going to do it. It's not a question, but I'm just saying I don't, I don't even think I could. But but certainly you must have some well all right i have a bunch of questions around this okay first of all like do you enjoy it like well are you doing so, it because you feel that you have to or are you doing oh, it no, because no, 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 you can't no. let go of the opportunities are you doing it because you enjoy by the it? way would you guys yes. would you guys like yes. to go to, ahead to to we're crunching so with those miles that you've flown okay yeah. you yeah. could have flown to the moon <laughs> And back, hasn't. hold on, hold on. How many times? And back, <laughs> 25 times. <laughs> okay, how many times would I, would I have been with Matt Damon in Mars? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would have got you to Mars. <laughs> well, no, and, but Susan, you make, you make you know, such an important point for us to consider, and it, it's really what we've been talking about today, and that is choice. And so, yes, it is, it's my choice to get on that aircraft. But I am so tremendously humbled and honored every time I receive a request to come and work with a company or a government or come to a conference. I couldn't be more delighted, and it's, it's without vanity, that people want me to join the party. I find, you know, the whole concept, I think Noah had it right. We have to have two of everybody at the party or we're not going to get the right answers. And so I'm absolutely delighted that I've been included in so many wondrous things that have changed quality of life over the years. Um, you know, from the first mammographic machine that releases the breast automatically as soon as the x-ray is completed, so it's less painful for us as women to be examined against breast cancer, to the first uh, full-body tomography system, to a vegetable peeler that people with arthritis can hold comfortably in their hand and make dinner. And let's face it, that one was for my grandmother. So I'm delighted to do all these things. Um, do I like the travel? Certainly not. It's become absolutely inhumane. It's often why I start with slides of, you know, 
ladies and gentlemen in suits and ladies with their white gloves and hats and everybody looks so proper and kind and polite. And that's, you know, that's a big fat dream um, because you see the behaviors on aircraft and you can't quite believe it. And then, um, you know, it's the danger involved. I must say that my mother sometimes has been deliberately kept in the dark about where I am in the world because I know she worries so. She keeps a, a daily diary of my flight numbers and she watches the news. And I know she's always looking for a down ship, thinking that I might be gone. And, um, and I don't like worrying her that way. But it is, it's uh, tedious and it's not good for our bodies. Um, when you look at the cancer rates among flight attendants and pilots, they are um, beyond the norm. And so, yeah, those are the dangers of the job. Um, and, and I don't mean to make myself sound so heroic, but you do it because that's how you get to work. And, um, and that's how I take it. Of course, the other piece is I'm up front or I'm on a private plane and that makes it so much better. Um, if someone told me they could only pay for, um, an economy ticket, then I, I also have the great privilege due to success of, uh, being able to upgrade myself. So I have some basic rules. I, you know, I do what I can to treat myself well. And then I look for service and, and um, the hospitality industry to meet me halfway. Well, with, with 12 million miles, you, you probably have accrued at least uh, a good amount of upgrade points. Over, yeah, over and I and I I give those I give those to Make a Wish, which I really love doing. You know, nothing makes me happier than uh, when I see a couple of soldiers at the gate and getting to go to the desk and and putting them in first class. I love I love being able to do things like that. That's cool. That that really tickles me. And and let me also share, especially you know, Susan, you and I do so much public speaking. And Guthrie, you do a fine share too. Um, when I accept an honoraria or a speaker's fee, what we do with it is uh, we tally everything up, and at the end of the year, we take that total, and then I double it and give it to um, my, my chosen charity of the year. And so this year, it's Parkinson's disease and research for Parkinson's. And, and I, I, um, I challenge um, other famous people to do the same thing with that money, because I consider it found money, and I think it, it's made to be given away. All right. So, what? Give me. Give us one tip. One travel tip. Wear black. <laughs> Wear black. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Everything I pack is black. It's forgiving. Um, no, seriously. I I don't check luggage, no matter how long I'm gone. You don't? Oh no, no. I'm a big fan of hand wash in the hotel. I don't let their laundry service take my things. I do. So my you own. you travel light. I travel very light. Um, I pack, um, uh, let me, this is not a plug, but Eileen Fisher is a genius. That woman really deserves a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in my book because she she is my uniform. Um, everything's, you know, mix and match. And I am a matchy-matchy. My shoes and bag have to match. Very Lucille Ball and, and that generation. But I, I deliberately, I travel with two pairs of shoes I wear my biggest pair of shoes, which usually means my, you know, cross trainers on the plane so that they take up, you know, less space in the suitcase. Um, I always have one fancy dress outfit because inevitably I have to go to some sort of a dinner party. But everything is based on, on black and then fabric technology that's forgiving so that I can roll things and scrunch up things and hand wash things. Uh, I haven't worn a structured suit in probably 30 years. And also I get away with murder because people are hiring a designer or a famous person. And so they expect you to be wearing a costume, not an outfit. <laughs> so I get away with costumes. And, um, you know, so I, I really refer to what I wear on stage as a, a costume. You know, I have a, a friend who travels a lot. Um, and one of the things she said she does is she takes – on her trips, her older clothing, and then uh, throws it away. I have done that, especially in countries like uh, when I when I'm in China or uh, Russia. Um, when you see the want in emerging um, countries, uh, I, I found early on in my career it's a nice thing to leave with an empty suitcase. So I leave it deliberately for the chambermaids. 
And the, the way I first recognized that, Susan, was I was in uh, Moscow in the 70s. And I had tossed away a pair of um, pantyhose with a runner. And the next day, the they hadn't collected the trash from the little, um, you know, uh, wastebasket in the room. But the pantyhose were gone. So it dawned on me. That poor woman had taken them, and she was going to mend them and make her make them her own. So I left her all my clothes, and that's when I started doing that. I like that one. Plus, it means if you're in London, you get to go shopping, and it helps the economy. And I'm a citizen. <laughs> I I really like this. I've I've been taking notes about this this particular section of our conversation. So, well, you know, I will tell you over the years, and I won't name her. Um, very famous uh, writer. <laughs> we were. We were both hired to, I guess I was doing the opening keynote and she did the close or something like that. But she shows up without a suitcase and her agent told me that um, she literally, I guess, has a pair of panties in her purse or something, but she wears one dress and she'll wear it for the day she travels, the day of the event and the day when she goes home. And I could never do that. That would just give me shivers. Yeah, I couldn't do that either. Yeah, that would, that would really be too far. Me. That's yeah. too far. Although yeah. it'd be interesting if you could wear layers and then just shed the clo- the most innermost layer and keep going. That, that has happened to me. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I don't check bags is I was I was going to give a, a, a lecture in Hamburg and um, my bag was checked in at JFK and only went as far as London and it took him a full week to get it to me. And thank God I was wearing one of those suits, you know, back in the eighties where there was like a vest and a blouse and a skirt and a jacket and a a scarf. And so each day I I removed just jettisoned one layer and tried to make it look different. But of course it was hot pink. So it was really (laughs) hard to miss me. That's also when I decided on black, black, everything black. All right. Well, we've got, I've got your travel tips. Uh, Patty, thanks so much for, for joining us. So tell us um, what's your, before you leave, what's your latest, you know, thing you're doing? Where's the next place you're going? Oh, well, I'll be in Bergen, Norway later this month. Bergen. And it'll be to uh, give a speech at the um, annual design week. So I'm very thrilled to be doing that. And then um, when they heard I was going to be in town, some of the academics in the area asked if I'd also come to two universities there to speak to the, the young puppies. And, you know, so it's time to make the donuts. I'll be working with the students. I'm going to do a workshop one day and I'll do um, a lecture another day. And that's, you know, I have to admit guys, that's what I really, that's why I get out of bed now. I love doing that. I just have such faith in the bright buttons. I truly, truly do. And that's not pandering and hoping that someone will take care of me because I don't have children, but no, (laughs) I have every hope that the great Geniuses will make me a robot of my choice, which is <laughs> Johnny Depp as Captain Jack. <laughs> you can keep Pepper. I'm not interested in the You don't mar- want Pepper? I don't want a marshmallow man. I want Captain Jack carrying me around. <laughs> All right. Well, someone keep that in mind. Patty wants uh, Johnny Depp as, as the Captain personal Jack. robot as Captain Jack. Um, if people, uh, want to get hold of you, Patty, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, they can, uh, check in on LinkedIn and, uh, and we'll take it from there. And let me just say, uh, bless you both. Um, the work you're doing is so essential and I'm so honored and delighted that now we're not just friends, we're family. And that's, that's really the best thing about travel is wherever I go, I always make a new family member. It's the best part of my life. You know, I I have to agree with that. I have so enjoyed um, the new friends that we make uh, when we travel. And I hope that we get to not just talk to you, but what we get to see you one of these days. Well, I'm sure we will. I have every faith. All right. Take care, you too. All right. And uh, Guthrie, let's remind everyone, if they like our uh, podcast, they should share it. They should um, rate it on iTunes or anywhere else. And anything else you have for us, Guthrie? Uh, no. Thank you for listening. It's uh, I I just want to say again, thank you, Patty. And uh, if that's it, I think we'll probably wrap up. You know, I have to say we are going to be almost exactly one hour on the nose. Hey, that's and, unusual. I mean, we don't have a we don't have a time limit, but 
it's it's just impressive. I don't, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm a pro. <laughs> <laughs> Consummate professional. That's right. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on uh, at some point in the near future. I hope. I'd love it. Yeah, if you ever actually have um, a specific topic that you really want to go at, let us know and we'll make it happen. Let's talk in November. Okay, we will do. Okay. All right, thank you, and uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>